Today's lecture is a special one for those of us here at the museum who had the privilege of working with our speaker. And it's particularly special for me because I think that I've known our speaker for longer than any of my colleagues here since we worked together back in the early 2000s at Pamplin Historical Park and the National Museum of the Civil War Soldier near Petersburg before he came here uh, to the museum. So Gregory J. Hansard teaches history and museum studies at John Tyler Community College. He previously worked here as manager of web and digital resources, and before that, as assistant editor of publications. He holds an undergraduate degree from the University of Virginia, where he played varsity baseball, and a master's degree in history from Virginia State University. After attending UVA, Greg played professional baseball in Germany, where he fell in love with German culture. His love of history began when his grandfather, Elmer Hansard, shared with him his experiences during World War II when he flew 69 missions as a tail gunner on a B-26. Greg is the author of a wonderful brand new book entitled German Sailors in Hampton Roads, a World War I story at the Norfolk Naval Yard. And he'll be happy to sign copies for you in the lobby after the lecture. So please give a warm welcome to my friend and colleague, Greg Hansard. Thank you, Andy, for that kind introduction. And thank you to Graham Dozier, my good friend, for inviting me here to speak with you today. It's really great to be back um, at this wonderful institution where I spent 12 years of my life. And I've seen a lot of familiar faces, both members and uh, staff. And I've already um, really experienced sort of a, a homecoming to come back. So thank you for the warm welcome that I've received. I'm especially grateful to be a part of the Banner Lecture Series named in honor of Charles F. Bryan, Jr. Dr. Bryan was president and CEO when I started working here in the research library under Francis Pollard in 2005. And Dr. Bryan and Francis both served as mentors to me in my career at the Historical Society and continued to support me in my current profession as a teacher. So thank you to both of you. Another individual who's had a large impact on my career at the Historical Society and also beyond is Nelson Lankford. Nelson was my boss when I worked in the publications department, and he always challenged me, encouraged me to go above and beyond, and he taught me to become a better writer. And last year, when I told Nelson that I had received a book contract, and I asked him if he'd be willing to read my manuscript, he didn't hesitate. And it's really because of his guidance as my editor that I was able to complete my book. Uh, so thank you to Nelson as well. So the title of my book is actually German Sailors in Hampton Roads, a World War I story at the Norfolk Navy Yard, as Andy mentioned. But I was really pushing for this title on the screen, Haven of Safety, the Kaiser's Courteous Pirates in Hampton Roads, right? Pirates. That gets people's attention. Um, but unfortunately, I lost the battle with the publisher. They argued that these World War I German sailors operated under the German flag um, when they went after uh, merchant ships. And the publisher was right. But despite this, I still tell my four-year-old son that daddy's book is about pirates. <laughs> and today, I'm going to share with you some of the highlights of this unique and peculiar story of the Kaiser's Courteous Pirates in Hampton Roads that took place about 100 years ago. And first, I want to tell you about how I discovered the topic, because it involves this very building that we're in today. From 2008 to 2011, I served as an assistant editor for the Virginia Historical Society's um, scholarly journal and also their members' newsletter. And one of my favorite jobs was not fact-checking the articles or indexing an issue of the Virginia Magazine of History and Biography, as much fun as that sounds. <laughs> it was actually finding a mystery photograph 
for the newsletter. And some of you may remember this with history notes on the back cover, you'd see a mystery photograph and you'd send in your, um, your guesses, right? And one day I was searching through the postcard collection trying to find something that would stump our readers and I came across this image of some jovial German sailors on board a ship in Newport News. And I was excited and I thought I'd found an image to fool our readers. And my next test was to check with the curator at Prints and Photographs because I knew if I could stump him, then I could fool all of you. I could fool our readers. And so I proudly entered his office. I covered up the bottom so he couldn't see the location. And I asked him to identify the scene. And he quickly responded, well, that's the German sailors who built the tiny village in Hampton Roads during <laughs> World War I. But that was all he could tell me. And I was disappointed at first that I couldn't use the image for the mystery photo, but I was intrigued at the story, and I wanted to know more. And this is what led me down a path uh, to do more research on the topic. I went to the National Archives, where I discovered 18 months of correspondence between the German captains and the US government along with manuscripts that ranged from Paps Blue Ribbon beer receipts to detailed descriptions of missing sailors who had escaped. There are even drawings of their tattoos you can see in this piece of correspondence from the German captain to the commandant. I went through almost two years of newspaper coverage from the Virginian pilot and the Norfolk landmark, which gave a clear picture of the German sailors' activities according to the local community. I also tracked down rare photographs and postcards from archives throughout the United States that showcased the village that they built at the Norfolk Navy Yard in Portsmouth, their ships, and their interactions with American citizens. And all these wonderful sources provided the evidence to tell the story of 800 German sailors internment in a Virginia maritime community during World War I. And that's what I'm going to tell you about today. Uh, you see this image. Most of the photographs that I found of the German sailors included them smoking um, and many times hold, there were animals in the pictures. So this picture that's on the cover of my book includes both of them. On March 25th, 1915, the propellers of the Prince Idol Frederick turned for over an hour as Captain Max Tiershens debated when he would make his daring dash back to sea. You may miss me at any time, the young German naval captain explained to hundreds of eager visitors who had come to catch a glimpse of the famous German raider that had sunk 11 ships during its seven-month voyage from Tsingtao, China, all the way to Virginia. The raider that once wrought havoc on merchant ships now sat in Newport News, a neutral port on the Virginia coast awaiting fuel and repairs before it could depart again. Tiershens explained his feelings about leaving to the crowd. I hate to go, he explained, but duty comes first of all. And besides, we all have our mission to fill, spoken like a true German captain, very confident. The headlines of the local paper, the Virginian pilot and the Norfolk landmark, greeted readers with a bit of surprise the following morning. The paper exclaimed that with the German cruiser apparently making preparations to sail with three foreign warships off the Virginia Capes, Hampton Roads took on a real warlike appearance, especially when the entire garrison of Fortress Monroe and Fort Wool were called to quarter. Now we can imagine getting our morning paper and reading the headlines that our town or city has taken on a war-like appearance. That would shock us. And this episode startled the maritime community and was the beginning of the entire country's anticipation of the dash of the cruiser to the open seas. Even the Richmond Times-Dispatch called the presence of the idol on the Virginia coast one of the most important events that had occurred on North American soil during World War I. Now, of course, this is before the United States has entered the war, about two years, right? But still, it's a bold claim that shows the significance of the, of the event to Virginia and the nation. 
But the raider, as its crew of more than 400, prepared for their sprint out to sea, there was another issue concerning one of the idol's victims, the William P. Fry. When Germany entered World War I in the summer of 1914, the idol was among several other merchant ships and luxury liners that were transformed into armed surface raiders. They were outfitted with guns and given a full crew in order to sink any vessels carrying contraband to the Allies. So on January 27, 1915, the idol intercepted the William P. Fry, an American merchant ship. After boarding the Fry, Captain Tiershens found the wheat cargo to be contraband, and the next day he decided to sink the ship. So when the idol enters U.S. waters, she has 25 members of the Fry's crew on board, including Captain Keene and his wife, and also their two children pictured here with German sailors on board the Prince Idol Frederick. Now think about that for a moment, right? You have a belligerent, a nation at war that has just sunk a neutral U.S. merchant ship, and now that belligerent is seeking refuge in the U.S. port, right? <laughs> and also, as the idol enters U.S. waters, it carries U.S. prisoners. I have an entire chapter dedicated to the case of the William P. Fry. It's a pretty remarkable story uh, that many people are unaware of. Despite the complications of the Fry and the dangers of the, of the lurking Allied ships, the German captain made it clear. Once he arrived in Hampton Roads, he was not intent on staying. It's also important to understand that in international law states that a belligerent can have 24 hours to refuel and get supplies, and then they must depart a neutral port. The idea is that a belligerent can't use a neutral port to outfit their ship for war. And the United States gives the idol several extensions beyond the 24 hours. The German captain continued to threaten to leave until the United States had had enough. You can clearly see that Tiershens was trying to keep the Allied ships on the Virginia coast occupied, right? Kind of playing a cat and mouse game. And the United States was getting tired of it. They had to keep holding up shipping during this time period to ensure that there were no violations of neutrality. And on April 7th, the US government sent orders to Tiershens, pictured here in the center, that they must depart by 4 AM the next day or otherwise accept internment. And the US government awaited Tiershen's response. April 8th was a gloomy day for the German captain. The letter he was about to submit would seal the fate of his ship and his crew. He would be interned, stuck in the United States until the end of the war. Tiershen's letter was straightforward. I inform you I intend to intern the Prince Idol Frederick. The main reason, he said, was because they stood little chance of making it to safety going through the lurking enemy cruisers. And as the crew of the idol prepared for their transfer from Newport News to the Norfolk Navy Yard in Portsmouth, another situation was developing a few miles off the Virginia coast. Another German raider, the Crown Prince Wilhelm, was about to attempt a similar dash through the Virginia Capes to seek refuge alongside the idol. With less than 25 tons of coal left in the ship and a crew sickened with Barry Barry, Commander Paul Tierfelder, captain of the Crown Prince, knew his only choice was to steam past French and British ships to safety in Hampton Roads. It was April 10, 1915, and his crew had been at sea for over 250 days without seeing a port. That's one of the main reasons many of his crew members are suffering from Barry Barry. They hadn't been able to adequately restock their food supply, and many sailors suffered from this lack of essential vitamins. As the Crown Prince began its sprint, an excited officer aboard the ship, Count Alfred von Nizakovsky, caught a glimpse of the lights on the Virginia coast. These lights, according to the Count, were the first sign I had seen of shore in many a day. They were so welcome, they seemed like home. And he believed that behind those lights was a haven of safety, a great nation, friendly to both sides in the war, and now our sole hope of protection. I use this quote at the beginning of the book. 
I think it really sums up how many of these men felt after being at sea for so many days. They viewed the lights on the Virginia shore as a haven of safety. And I think it's also a sign of the relationships that would form between the German sailors and the community in Norfolk and Portsmouth. As the Crown Prince moved closer and closer to the Virginia shore, they spotted two ships straight ahead. They were British ships. They inched closer and closer, hoping that they wouldn't be spotted. And a few moments later, they made it past the British cruisers. They were safe. The crew celebrated. Some danced, recalled Nizakovsky. Some turned somersaults and all acted as if possessed. I love that vivid description of the jubilation of these men. You know, we've made it. We're finally here. And Nizakovsky, along with many of the other crew members, knew that they'd be interned. And many believe that it sufficed, that the ship was safe, had not been captured, had not been beaten on the sea. The ship that had destroyed 14 merchant ships now sought refuge in a neutral harbor, the same port that held their sister ship, the Idol. The next morning, as they neared the Virginia coast, an American ship came to their side and delivered two officers to pilot the German cruiser into the harbor. In the next few weeks in Newport News, for the Crown Prince were similar to when the Idol attempted to make its journey back out to sea. Tierfelder was just as brash as Tiershans. Just as easily and quietly as I slipped into this port, I'm going out, remarked the captain. But many, including the US government and the German sailors, knew that their time was up. They had more than 60 sick crew members and a battered ship. They had to intern. On May 3rd, 1915, the Crown Prince and its crew were transferred from Newport News to the Norfolk Navy Yard in Portsmouth. This is a shot of the a postcard of the two ships at the Norfolk Navy Yard in Portsmouth. This would be their place of internment for both of the German cruisers. These German sailors would remain in the US until the end of the war. The Idol and the Crown Prince's daring adventures on the high seas were over, but a new adventure would begin with their internment. I have a chapter that focuses on the economic benefits for Norfolk and Portsmouth as a result of the presence of the German sailors and their ships. During their 18 months of internment, the sailors purchased goods from local stores, ranging from sheet music for the band and Christmas supplies to sporting goods and cooking supplies. They requested passes to go to the dentist, the hospital, and laundry. And as you've seen earlier, one of their regular purchases was their bi-monthly shipment of kegs of Pabst Blue Ribbon. When I was going through the correspondence at the National Archives, you know, every few sheets of correspondence, you get to see uh, this receipt here from the local uh, Norfolk branch of Pabst. As a result of the purchase of goods and services in the area, and also the tourism that they generated, the local Chamber of Commerce obviously wanted to keep the ships in Hampton Roads. You have 800 new residents. And you, more importantly, you also have people who want to see them. They become a big tourist destination. This is a shot of the Norfolk Navy Yard here in Portsmouth, where the sailors were interned. When the mayor of Norfolk, Wyndham R. Mayo, and the president of the Chamber of Commerce heard rumors that the German ships might move to Philadelphia, they left for Washington immediately. And they met with Secretary of the Navy Josephus Daniels to convince him to keep the ships in Hampton Roads. And the reason for wanting to move the ships was to free up space for the expansion of the Navy Yard in Portsmouth, which would happen in 1916. Mayo and Myers argued that there was more than enough space for the ships. And if they moved them, it would be a heavy blow to the local community. And again, of course, they want to keep the ships there because the ship's presence is making them money. On May 1st, Secretary Daniels made the decision to keep the ships at the Norfolk Navy Yard in Portsmouth. Local companies also took advantage of the potential tourist attraction and offered sightseeing tours of the vessels as soon as they entered Hampton Roads. 
On March 15th, only a few days after the idol arrived, an advertisement in the Virginian pilot announced that the steamer Clio of the Norfolk Steamboat Company will make a special trip to Newport News to view the Prince Idol Frederick. There were several charters that left Norfolk and other areas to take curious passengers to view these ships. Um, these two images, this, this photograph here, and the next one are both uh, images of the sailors aboard the Prince Idol, Frederick, soon after they arrive in Hampton Roads. Um, interest in the German ships was far greater than the US ships. And newspaper advertisements placed the German cruisers ahead of advertisements for US ships. March 21st, big letters at the bottom of the Virginian pilot exclaimed, see the German raider Prince, Ad Prince Idol Frederick. Big letters. And below that, and also the USS Pennsylvania just launched. <laughs> so the Idol is listed as a main attraction, while the USS Pennsylvania is almost an afterthought. The paper and the boating companies are catering to the public's interests. The novelty of these foreign commerce raiders, or pirate ships, trump the newly launched American battleship. And remember, the idol sank an American merchant ship, right? Tourism also increased not only because of the presence of the German sailors, but because of a new attraction that they built, a German village. In the fall of 1915, the crews began creating the village out of scraps of glass, lumber, and other materials. It eventually included more than 50 colorfully painted miniature buildings and became one of the major tourist destinations on the East Coast. More than 1,000 visitors toured the small replica village one day in 1916. And the village was appropriately named Idol Wilhelm after the two ships and its buildings consisted of a church, a newspaper office, telegraph station, postmaster station, fire department, police station, and several other little German villas. They even had a gymnasium, bowling alleys, and of course, a baseball field. The buildings were decorated with sunflower and hollyhock gardens and red roofs white curtains and carvings along the eaves and fence posts. And the villas were named after German ships, including the Emden, which equipped the Idol, and the Karlsruhe, which equipped the Crown Prince and was also where Tierfelder had served as an engineer. Tourists flocked to the village to experience German culture and craftsmanship. Sailors performed acrobatic shows sang songs, and gave concerts. I, I've described this as, if we can imagine, Disneyland in 1915, right? <laughs> there are a couple of photos that show um, the Navy Yard appears to be a scene from a carnival. I mean, there's all these vendors selling food, uh, trinkets, and uh, games are being played. There were tiny lakes, gardens, and farms one visitor remarked of the spectacle of the village, calling it an atmosphere of Kaiser and culture and Wiener Schnitzel and good, sturdy Lutheranism. <laughs> Everything one could find in an honest, hardworking German town of the old country. I think that's one of my favorite quotes, you know, Disneyland 1915, but Kaiser culture and Wiener Schnitzel and, of course, Lutheranism. But the village was not only for tourists. The main reason that it was built was to create a sense of the fatherland for the crews of the idol and the crown prince. To continue their sense of patriotism, they planted flowers in the rose garden to form a shape similar to an iron cross. The garden provided a source of cucumbers, tomatoes, radishes, and other vegetables. Their farm also included some of the animals that they had acquired on their voyage to the Virginia shores, along with new ones that they had purchased while staying in Hampton Roads. 
One of the only signs in English was located on the road next to the farm. Warning, go slow, be careful of chickens, pigeons, and ducks. <laughs> These agricultural areas provided sources of food and created a home-like atmosphere, but they couldn't replicate home life exactly. When asked about the village, the owner of one of the villas explained, not all perfect. Nine, vo, 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 where is die Mutter? Where is the Gretchen, he asked. Their new home lacked a woman, a mother, a wife, and a daughter. They couldn't recreate, uh, they could try to recreate the fatherland structurally, but they couldn't recreate their household. And since they couldn't see their loved ones, they thought of ways to help the women and children back home. All entry fees to the village were donated to the German Red Cross to help the families of soldiers and sailors. They found other ways to make money for the charity, for the German Red Cross, by selling souvenirs, postcards, children's toys, and even their paper, the Colony Anzeiger. There are a few copies of their newspaper at archives in the US. The Portsmouth Naval Shipyard Museum has a copy. Um, the German Society of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia has a copy. And their weekly paper included events and happenings around the Navy Yard. And it also reported on war news abroad and, of course, attempted to debunk much of the British propaganda that was being circulated. Visitors also had the opportunity to tour the ships. On a tour through the ships, visitors could get a beer and a sandwich at the Rats Keller for a few cents. And on one Sunday in May 1915, a local preacher wanted to investigate the selling of beer on the cruiser. <laughs> this is one of my favorite stories. Reverend J.L. Westfall of South Street Baptist Church in Norfolk visited <laughs> And I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, so I can see where this goes. <laughs> Reverend Westfall visited the Wilhelm on May 23rd, and he observed the sale of beer to several American citizens, including himself, right? He's got to taste it. Westfall then formed a committee with other preachers in the area to draft a letter to the Secretary of Navy, Josephus Daniels. Reverend Westfall reported to the committee that during his time on the cruiser, he tasted the beverage to satisfy himself it was beer. <laughs> it gets even better. So if that wasn't good enough, Westfall and his party purchased six rounds total. <laughs> he preached to his congregation next Sunday against the sale of beer on Sunday. He involved the local police, but they could do little because the beer was sold on a foreign ship. But as a compromise, the German captains agreed not to sell beer to visitors on Sunday. When I was presenting at a World War I conference a few years ago, um, you know, I was talking to some naval historians, and I was telling them about this account. And I thought to myself, well, like the Secretary of Navy, Joseph Daniels, really cares about alcohol being served on naval ships, right? Well, they were quick to point out that Daniels is the one who removes alcohol on US Navy ships in 1914. During internment, the sailors found activities to pass the time. Many of these activities and events were part of American culture. The sailors observed American sporting and military events and participated in religious services alongside American citizens. The interned sailors really had a full social life. They were introduced to America's pastime, baseball. On April 23, 1915, several of the German sailors went to the opening game of the Virginia Baseball League. It featured Norfolk against Portsmouth and was a pitcher's duel, ending with Norfolk winning two to nothing. The sailors continued to go to games during their stay and even created a field in their area of the Navy Yard. And the sailors' connection to baseball is very intriguing to me because I played baseball in Germany, professional baseball. Now, it's not the same as the American and National League that we have here, but it does exist, and it's becoming more popular. 
And I think it'd be great to try to connect these German sailors to the beginning of baseball Bundesliga in Germany. The sailors regularly attended religious and holiday services and churches in Hampton Roads. On May 3rd, more than 500 people attended Sunday school and church service at Monumental Church in Portsmouth, including members of the German ships. The paper reported that it was the largest number of the year that had received the Holy Communion. The German sailors' Christmas activities for 1915 included religious services, dinners, and parties. One of the German officers, Chief Engineer Mueller, met with a clergyman from St. Paul's Catholic Church in Portsmouth about Christmas Mass. And then a week later, Secretary Daniels granted the sailors leave to go ashore to celebrate the Holy Day. So on Christmas morning, more than 200 German sailors marched from the yard to the church, accompanied by U.S. escorts. And they sat in pews alongside U.S. sailors. And when mass concluded, the U.S. military escorted the interned sailors back to the Navy Yard. The German sailors also threw a great New Year's Eve party. And the party was very well attended. And even the famous Baltimore Sun newspaper editor, H.L. Minken, attended the festivities. Minken greatly enjoyed the sailors' party and recalled a few important moments during the evening. One was that the commandant of the Navy Yard's wife, Elsie, was pregnant, and the German captain, Tiershens, offered a toast to her and the newcomer, greatly to her delight. The second was that Nizakovsky had to cut off the beer supply because he believed that the men had a lower tolerance for alcohol than the Navy sailors abroad. From, from the accounts and correspondence of this party, it really appears that it was getting a little out of hand. And Minken may have had too great of a time himself because on his return trip the next morning, he recalled that I was so much used up that I slept all the way home. The German sailors found activities, boating, baseball, swimming, religious services, and parties to keep them busy during their internment. But most of them longed to get back to their homeland and their families. And these feelings are what led to the main problem of internment for the US government, escapes. Despite the large amount of liberty that they were given, they were still not free. And this lack of freedom created escapes. And one in particular caused a great stir. On the morning of October 10th, 1915, six interned sailors left the Navy Yard dressed in civilian clothes and embarked on a yacht, slipping past guards off the coast of Cape Henry. The sailors had bought the yacht Eclipse from a local architect. They worked on the yacht for a month equipped it with new sails, several coats of paint, and even made the engine twice the horsepower of the original. <laughs> they had become regulars at the local yacht club and had been out several times, but always returned. Now, this seems pretty obvious to us what's going on, right? But somehow this went undetected um, with the naval officials and the US government. Uh, there's even documentation that the yacht sail was approved. The flight of the eclipse sparked several rumors to its whereabouts. One rumor claimed that the ship had somehow been equipped with guns off the coast of Florida and joined up with a raiding party to sink British and French ships. Uh, right, we can envision a 60-foot yacht trying to take down some massive British and French cruisers off the coast of Florida. Another rumor claimed that the sailors joined a Swedish steamer off Texas and went to Cuba or Mexico. Two bottles came to the Virginia beaches with messages supposedly from the eclipse. That's right, message in a bottle. The first message claimed, on board yacht eclipse, 90 miles off Hatteras, in howling gale, no water and no gasoline, everyone exhausted. The next message was found off Ocean View by Clark Wheaton of Chicago. Think of this uh, tourist going on a, a, a nice vacation, and he's walking on the beach, and he comes across a champagne bottle that contained the message, we are, it, we are sailing for Germany 
on-yacht eclipse from six of the German ship lying in the U.S. Navy Yard. The Commandant of the Navy Yard believed the rumors to be false and said they were either picked up by the British or drowned at sea. And the crew of the eclipse never turned up, and the Commandant was probably right. The saga of the eclipse, along with several other sailors' escapes, forced Washington to take measures to ensure that this wouldn't happen again. Secretary of the Navy Daniels wrote to the Commandant of the Navy Yard saying, either increase guard or take any other necessary measures to make future escape of German personnel impossible. He made it clear that future escapes would not be excused. And after seven months of watching the German sailors, Rear Admiral Frank Beatty retired from his post as Commandant of the Norfolk Navy Yard. And Rear Admiral Walter McLean took over Beatty's position in the end of November 1915. Um, Beatty's over here, closest to me, and McLean's on the other side. So there were two Commandants in the Navy Yard during the German sailors' internment. And McLean would form special bonds with the German sailors that would last well after the war was over. The problem with escapes and passes were always an issue for the US government. They wanted to allow the German sailors some freedom, but they did not want them to escape. Escapes caused negative press for the US government, and no matter what freedoms and liberties were given to the German sailors, they were never truly free. They could not fight for their country, and they could not go back home. On September 29, 1916, U.S. authorities moved the German sailors and their ships to the Philadelphia Navy Yard. Naval officials decided in the summer of 1916 that the Navy Yard in Portsmouth would be expanded. This meant that the sailors would have to tear down their own village that took them almost six months to create. And after the village was torn down, the community made it clear that the village would be missed the German village at the Navy Yard is no more, and the whole South is sufferer thereby," exclaimed one article in Popular Science. Now, this statement is a bit over the top and romanticized, but I think it does show some of the strong feelings that the local com community had for these German sailors, and again, before the US enters the war, right? The German sailors' time in Philadelphia was short and not as lenient as in Hampton Roads, as increasing strains on German-American relations continued as a result of World War I. By the end of 1916, skepticism about German immigrants and interned sailors began to spread after there were incidents in the Northeast where German aliens sabotaged U.S. property. Mayor of Philadelphia, Thomas Smith, expressed his trepidations about keeping the crews of the Idol and Crown Prince. They might all escape and seize the Navy Yard. At the very least, they were all spying against America. To alleviate concerns over protecting the German sailors' safety and also protecting US property, Washington decided to move the sailors south to a more secluded area, away from ocean access at Fort Oglethorpe and Fort McPherson in Georgia. This is a shot, uh, a, a photograph of Fort McPherson in Georgia. Their new homes featured greater isolation from civilian populations and isolation from water access and also stronger security. On April 6, 1917, after a series of disputes with the Germany over unrestricted submarine warfare, the United States entered World War I against the German Empire. That same day, the collector for the Port of Philadelphia seized the interned cruisers. The Crown Prince was eventually renamed the USS von Steuben. The Prince Otto Friedrich was renamed the USS de Kalb. And both served as troop ships for the US during World War I. I hear some chuckles. Yeah, I think it's interesting that both of these ships um, were named after revolutionary officers, right, that had ties with Germany. Johann de Kalb and Friedrich Wilhelm von Steubmann. I think that's a, a nice compliment to the German sailors. 
The crew members of the surface raiders now officially became prisoners of war. Their freedom of movement and liberties were stripped from them, and the sailors' two years of confinement to prison barracks in Georgia was dull compared to the experience that they had in Hampton Roads. The German POWs were eventually released in 1919, a few months after the end of the war. Most went back home to Europe, but some sailors like Count Alfred von Nizakovsky enjoyed his stay so much that they decided to make the US their permanent home. The former German naval officer from the Crown Prince became a US citizen in 1926 and married Miss Nanine Ullman of Baltimore a year later. Nizakovsky's choice for his best man at his wedding may have surprised many because of the past strains on German-American relations since US entry into World War I. But to others who knew about the internment, it may not have been such a shock. His best man, pictured here, was retired US Naval officer, Rear Admiral Walter McLean, the former commandant of the Norfolk Navy Yard, who had watched Nizakovsky along with the rest of the 800 German sailors in Hampton Roads. Two years after his wedding in 1929, Nizakovsky published a book on his experience aboard the Crown Prince. In the foreword of his book, his best man, Walter McLean, an overseer of the German sailors, explained that the Wilhelm was a friendly visitor and Count von Nizakovsky became my guest. Positive relationships like Nizakovsky and McLean's echo throughout the internment. And these bonds are what made the internment of the Prince Idol Friedrich and Crown Prince Wilhelm so unique. But it was Nizakovsky's conclusion, not the foreword of his book, that made me realize there was a great story behind that postcard that I found in the stacks of the Virginia Historical Society. He said, the events of our internment were as interesting to me as those of the crews. I believe Nizakovsky was right, and now I hope you do too. Thank you. I think we've got a few questions. Uh, some microphones roaming around. Got one in the front, Graham. Not sure Paige is over there. And one right there, Paige. Yeah, got, got it. How were the Germans able to finance, especially initially, everything that transpired? Yeah, so that's a question that comes up a lot. And I touch on it briefly in the book. Um, money was, was a problem, uh, for sure. I mean, this is a. Uh, a, a ship that had been on the sea, each of the ships had been on the sea for a very long time. Um, they did have gold reserves on the ship, um, but what you see is, you know, after they paid for some of the repairs to the ship and um, regular supplies, money starts to go down. Um, they did make some money. They, they said they sent everything to the German Red Cross on trinkets that they sold and the beer they sold and admission. Um, but I believe they did, did use some of that money to, to purchase things in the community. Um, another thing, Bernstorff, the, Bernstorff, the ambassador, is in regular correspondence with uh, Navy Yard officials as well in terms of money. Um, and then also the Deutschland, uh, the German submarine, the Deutschland, made it through the blockade, uh, two trips to the United States. And one of those trips, it lands, in, it docks in Hampton Roads um, and delivers um, some supplies, not much, mostly letters um, and uh, a little bit of money. But um, the captain, Captain Tiershens did throw a party for the, the sub's crew and the captain at that point. But you start to see as you get closer to 1916, uh, money is a major problem, especially when the German sailors become POWs. It's, it's, um, it's tough, so it was an issue for most of the time. Uh, I think we got one. Actually, that was his question. Oh, OK. Also. Yeah, that's one of his questions. Hey, hey. <laughs> Here we go. The two ships that you showed us here apparently were war vessels. Is that correct? I did not see any guns 
or I mean, any kind. They look like passenger ships to me. Is that true? Yeah, so they were both originally built for the North German Lloyd Line uh, as luxury liners in 1901, I believe 1903. Um, and so they served as luxury liners. And then when Germany entered the war, they were one of um, about I think, a little more than 20 ships of these uh, luxury liners and merchant ships that were transformed into, uh, into auxiliary cruisers. And so they were equipped with armaments. Um, each ship had about, uh, one ship had four guns, and um, the other ship had six, I believe, a pair of 88s on, on each of them as well. So they, they, they were armed at the outset of, of World War I, but they were luxury liners. That's what they served as. One, one comment to go along with that, why I refer to them as um, courteous pirates, is because these ships combined um, sank 25 merchant ships, 25 merchant ships. And the documentation and from the correspondence, the way that they would approach a merchant ship that they thought was trading with the allies, they'd fire a warning shot, and then they would remove the crew of that merchant ship, put that crew on their ship, and then place explosives on the merchant ship and destroy it. And no lives were lost in uh, both of the ship's journeys at sea. But they were very uh, successful um, with 25, 25 merchant ships. Good question. What did, what did the Germans think of Pabst Blue Ribbon beer? Um, from the financial records, it appears they really liked it. Uh, I, um, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, they, you know, I talk a lot in uh, my classes at John Tyler when we get to World War I, and I talk about how anti-German propaganda began to take hold um, with U.S. entry into the war, and you know, many of the brewers are, are of German descent, and it starts to be boycotting on German beer, and you know, use grain uh, for for food, not for beer, and things like that. But yeah, I'm not not sure exactly what they thought of it. I would imagine the original recipes, and we actually have a beer historian in the audience, Lee Graves. He'd be able to comment on this more. But I imagine those original recipes were pretty good. Were pretty good, and Lee's hopefully gives me a thumbs up on that. Yeah, I think the yeah the preacher can attest to it, right? <laughs> Anyone? No, they stayed on the ship unless they went to a destination where they could um, remove them. Um, there's a, a great book called On, on the Wolf, um, another German ship, and it really documents uh, the experience of prisoners that were taken off these merchant ships. Um, and, and that's a fantastic read on the Wolf. But uh, when the ships come into um, Newport News, um, and they're getting ready to be interned. Of course, the, the U.S. POWs are removed immediately, and eventually the, um, the British and, and Russian um, and, and other uh, refugees are removed as well. But um, they kept them on the ship until they could, could release them. You know, wherever you find four German Lutherans, you'll always find a fifth. I like that. Very good, very good, very good. Excellent. Who became a naturalized American. Were there very many others? Yeah, there were um, 140, I don't know the exact numbers, between 140 to 150, it's in the book. About 150 of the German sailors who applied to stay in the United States. 
and 77 of them were allowed to stay. Now, Nizakovsky is one that I've really been able to track down because he uh, became a politician in the Midwest and, and published his book, The Cruise of the Crown Prince Wilhelm. So he's documented, but there are, again, were about 70 plus that end up staying um, at some point in the United States. As a sequel, you might look at the lives of the Germans who stayed and also find out whether any of the POWs from other nations wound up staying here or whether they made it home, and if they did, how successful they were. Yeah, that's a great point. I've, I've received the question a few times about um, if these German captains or officers, um, what role they played in World War II, and I haven't done as much research to uh, dig into that, but I agree, that could be a, a sequel. On what basis were the uh, prisoners allowed to stay and, or rejected? I'm not sure um, exactly. I haven't dug too deep into that. I would, Im would imagine it, it had to do something with um, allegiance or, or some, something along that lines. I don't know if there was a disability. Um, you, know, you look at how immigrants were uh, admitted through Ellis Island. Um, I don't know if there were any sort of disability tests or things like that, or was it purely a legion's thing, or they had a letter, had to have a letter or um, a, a good reference or something like that. I'm not, not sure on that. This is a little bit of a departure, but my father, born in 1901, grew up in Portsmouth and used to tell us about the German village, but one of his stories also was about baseball. Oh. Apparently, there was a man who came from Smithfield to Portsmouth on his first trip. And because the roads were so bad, he had to take a boat, uh, a ferry boat to Norfolk, to Newfoundland, then to Norfolk, and then another ferry to Portsmouth. And as he was getting off the Norfolk to Portsmouth ferry, a huge crowd of people came running down High Street, shaking fists and throwing things. And there was one man dressed in black ahead of them. <laughs> And, and the man jumped on the ferry boat just as it was leaving, and, and the, the crowd, angry crowd, came running up behind him, and someone said, what was that all about? And the response was, Portsmouth played Norfolk today in baseball. That was the umpire. Oh, that's good. Oh, excellent. excellent. That's great. That that's a, uh, a great story, and um, I've, when I've presented at Portsmouth and Norfolk, I've heard of people who have great-grandparents or, or relatives who um, visited these German sailors when they were at the Navy Yard in Portsmouth. And it's remarkable how many people have reached out to me and said that you know, they have a letter um, you know, in their basement or they have connections you know, through family history uh, to this village. And that's what most people remember. They remember the German village that they built. Um, and it's kind of an oral history that's been passed down through generations. So that's uh, a remarkable story. So Greg will be in the lobby to sign copies of his book and answer more questions. So let's give him one more.